This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program today. Let's start with a story about a few dung beetles and an elephant. It goes like this. There once was a beetle which came upon a lump of cow dung. He worked himself into it, and liking what he saw, he invited his friends to join him in building a city in it. After working feverishly for a few days, they built a magnificent city in the dung, and feeling very proud of their achievement, they decided to elect the first beetle as their king. Now to honour their new king, they organised a grand parade through their city. While these impressive proceedings were taking place, an elephant happened to pass by, and seeing the lump of cow dung, he lifted his foot to avoid stepping on it. The king beetle saw the elephant and angrily shouted at the huge beast, Hey you! Don't you have any respect for royalty? Don't you know it's rude to lift your leg over my majestic head? Apologies at once or I'll have you punished. The elephant looked down and said, Your most gracious majesty, I humbly crave your pardon. Thus saying, he knelt down on the lump of cow dung and crushed king, city, citizens and pride in one act of obeisance. Now, if you were with us in those previous programs, you would remember that the first verse of the eight verses of mind training spoke of the immense value of other beings. It reads, Determined to obtain the greatest possible benefit for all sentient beings who are more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel, I shall hold them most dear at all times. The verse sets out the bodhicitta motivation. To give the greatest possible benefit to all beings, you have to be enlightened. And then says, sentient beings are more precious than any jewel, even one that could fulfill all our temporal wishes. Now, over the last two weeks, we examined why they are so valuable, seeing that not only do we need them in our practice to attain enlightenment, sentient beings are actually also indispensable for every aspect of our day-to-day life. Remember, I asked you to imagine being the only being on the planet. How could you exist? We also examined the terrible effects on people who were either guinea pigs in experiments on isolation and sensory deprivation, or prisoners consigned to long periods of solitary confinement. We absolutely need to have others around us. So it's essential that we recognize the importance of other beings to both our temporal and ultimate happiness and value them highest of all. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, if we cultivate such an attitude towards cherishing others first, our eventual enlightenment will come of its own accord in due course. We ended last week's program with a quote, Even in this life, if we try to help others as much as we can and have as few selfish thoughts as possible, We shall experience much happiness. Our life is not long, 100 years at most. 
If throughout its duration we try to be kind, warm-hearted, concerned for the welfare of others and less selfish and angry, that will be wonderful, excellent. That really is the cause of happiness. Mentally putting ourselves last and others first is the way to come out ahead. And His Holiness goes on, So don't worry about the next life or nirvana. These things will come gradually. If within this life you remain a good, warm-hearted, unselfish person, you will be a good citizen of the world. Whether you are a Buddhist, Christian or a communist is irrelevant. The important thing is that as long as you are a human being, you should be a good human being. That is the teaching of Buddhism. That is the message carried by all the world's religions. In further considering Langri Tampa's first stanzas, there are some wonderful verses in Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life that show that this concern for others can be limitless, in one's mind at least. The verses read, May I be the doctor in medicine and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May a rain of food and drink descend to clear away the pain of thirst and hunger and during the aeon of famine may I myself change into food and drink. May I become an inexhaustible treasure for those who are poor and destitute. May I turn into all things they could need and may these be placed close beside them. Without any sense of loss, I shall give up my body and enjoyments, as well as all my virtues of the three times, for the sake of benefiting all. By giving up all, sorrow is a transcended, and my mind will realize the sorrowless state. It is best that I now give everything to all beings, in the same way as I shall at death. Having given this body up for the pleasure of all living beings, by killing, abusing and beating it, may they always do as they please." Although they may play with my body and make it a source of jest and blame, because I have given it up to them, what is the use of holding it dear? Therefore I shall let them do anything to it that does not cause them any harm. And when anyone encounters me, may it never be meaningless for him. If in those who encounter me a faithful or an angry thought arises, may that eternally become the source for fulfilling all their wishes. May all who say bad things to me or cause me any other harm, and those who mock and insult me have the fortune to fully awaken. May I be a protector for those without one, a guide for all travellers on the way. May I be a bridge, a boat and a ship for all who wish to cross the water. May I be an island for those who seek one, and a lamp for those desiring light. May I be a bed for all who wish to rest, and a slave for all who want a slave. May I be a wishing jewel, a magic vase, powerful mantras and great medicine. May I become a wish-fulfilling tree and a cow of plenty for the world. Just like space and the great elements such as earth, may I always support the life of all the boundless creatures. And until they pass away from pain, may I also be the source of life for all the realms of varied beings that reach unto the ends of space. And these verses are from the chapter on full acceptance of the awakening mind and the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Ultimately, we are aiming at this kind of concern for others, a concern where we give ourselves only enough to ensure we are best placed to benefit others. In our present state, or mine at least, this is of course not possible. But we can aspire and slowly work to strengthen ourselves until our aspiration becomes actualization. With that in mind, 
Let's now take a look at the second verse of the eight verses of mind training. This is the verse that prompted the story about the beetles and the elephant. The verse reads, When in the company of others I shall always consider myself the lowest of all, and from the depths of my heart hold others dear and supreme. Now I can hear a chorus of indignant hoots about how quickly people will walk all over us if we go making ourselves the lowest of all, and also how, if we already have low esteem, as many Westerners seem to have, seeing ourselves as lowest will just probably lead to us wanting to commit suicide. But the meaning of this verse neither points to allowing ourselves to be imposed on, nor enhancing our low self-esteem. It's not telling us to just let people who indulge in bad or arrogant behavior harm and denigrate us as they like. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says it is, and I quote, important to understand the expression, I shall always consider myself the lowest of all, in the right context. He writes, certainly it is not saying that you should engage in thoughts that would lead to lower self-esteem, or that you should lose all sense of hope and feel dejected, thinking, I am the lowest of all, I have no capacity, I cannot do anything and have no power. This is not the kind of consideration of lowness that is being referred to here. The regarding of oneself as lower than others really has to be understood in relative terms. Then he says, Generally speaking, human beings are superior to animals. We are equipped with the ability to judge between right and wrong and to think in terms of the future and so on. However, one could also argue that in other respects, human beings are inferior to animals. For example, animals may not have the ability to judge between right and wrong in a moral sense, and they might not have the ability to see the long-term consequences of their actions. But within the animal realm, there is at least a certain sense of order. If you look at the African savanna, for example, predators prey on other animals only out of necessity when they are hungry. When they are not hungry, you can see them coexisting quite peacefully. But we human beings, despite our ability to judge between right and wrong, sometimes act out of pure greed. Sometimes we get engage in actions purely out of indulgence. We kill out of a sense of sport, say, when we go hunting or fishing. So, in a sense, one could argue that human beings have proven to be inferior to animals. It is in such relativistic terms that we can regard ourselves as lower than others. His Holiness goes on, One of the reasons for using the word lower is to emphasize that normally, when we give in to ordinary emotions of anger, hatred, strong attachment and greed, we do so without any sense of restraint. Often we are totally oblivious to the impact our behavior has on other sentient beings. But by deliberately cultivating the thought of regarding others as superior and worthy of your reverence, you provide yourself with a restraining factor. Then, when emotions arise, they will not be so powerful as to cause you to disregard the impact of your actions upon other sentient beings. It is on these grounds that recognition of others as superior to yourself is suggested. And in his commentary on the eight verses, Dr. Alex Burson finds two ways of interpreting this verse, and one of them relates to the Beatles and Elephant story, which I bet you thought we'd never get to. Well, what do you think is the moral of that story? And what was the problem for the Beatles? 
One may, of course, think, like the Beatles did, that the elephant was the problem. But that's not looking far enough. The real problem is, of course, the pride and arrogance of the Beetle King. The King Beetle saw the elephant and angrily shouted at the huge beast, Hey, you! Don't you have any respect for royalty? Don't you know it's rude to lift your leg over my majestic head? Apologies at once or I'll have you punished. When we develop such an attitude, we can make ourselves just as ridiculous as the beetle yelling at the elephant and set ourselves up for a similar disastrous fate. So one of the things that Langri Tampa's verse is counteracting is pride and arrogance. Of course, when we tend to see ourselves as higher or better than others, automatically some pride arises and that easily leads to arrogant behavior. However, if we train to see ourselves as the least in every situation, it will be impossible for the pride and arrogance to arise. It's good to remember that however good we are at anything, there will always be someone better. That's not to say that we can't be the best at what we do, but even if we are, it's impossible to remain that way all the time. The moment we are held as the best, we are heading to the moment when someone else overtakes us. In any case, always being the best means we have to sustain ourselves at an incredibly high level constantly, which is mostly impossible. For instance, let's take the sport of tennis. For some time, Roger Federer was regarded by some people as the GOAT, the greatest of all time. But then, Rafael Nadal came along and started beating Federer. In turn, Nadal was duly challenged by the current world number one, Novak Djokovic. But very recently, Djokovic himself was beaten in a fairly major tournament by Roger Federer. From time to time, all of these on top of their game have been beaten by other top players and even trounced by other lower-ranked players. If any of the top players develop pride, how painful it will be when someone they regard as much lower than themselves beats them. So here, it would be much more fruitful for them, even knowing that they are among the better players in the world, to maintain an attitude of humility, even expecting to be beaten from time to time by players ranked much lower than themselves. In a way, if they regard themselves as not high up and even as the lowest, their achievements could be regarded as even more remarkable. Why? Because both fans and other players will recognize not only how talented they are, but what nice people they are on and off the court. And in any case, when it comes time for such great sports people to retire, it'll be much easier if they already have a humble attitude. Humility may motivate them to help promising youngsters in their sport through coaching, advice and so on. Whereas, with pride, they could easily become grizzled codgers growling on the sidelines, always gnashing their teeth against the young guns that have taken their place. Or they may give in to a debilitating depression. Another consideration to counteract pride is to remember that although you may be top in your field of expertise, others around you will have much better skills or qualities in other fields. Does being the top tennis player in the world make you one of the best cooks or even best people in the world? Of course not. You may have the measure of all you encounter on the tennis court, but the crowds watching, the officials and the other players may find you an obnoxious and cantankerous person. 
then what is the value of being the top competitor? It is sure that every person you play against will have some quality, some skill, that you will not be able to meet. So one way of understanding this verse is as a counteraction to pride and arrogance. The other, according to Dr. Burson, comes from remembering the advantages of cherishing others and the disadvantages of self-cherishing. If you remember the great advantages of putting others first and yourself last, this verse makes good sense. Those of you who are with us through the programs on Shantideva's Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life and also the three principal aspects of the path will remember that one of the ways of developing bodhicitta is called exchanging self for others. And the foundation of that meditation is the contemplation on the disadvantages of self-cherishing and the advantages of cherishing others. In those previous programs, we went quite extensively into all that. But here is just briefly a visit to the reasoning given by Geshe Lodon in his book Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism. On the advantages of cherishing others, he writes, Happiness and good conditions are a result of positive karma. Positive karma arises from virtuous minds, and virtuous minds arise from the attitude of cherishing others. Let's take some examples. A long life is the result of positive karma of protecting the lives of others. The compassion that motivated you to protect others' lives comes from cherishing or caring for those living beings. Beauty is the result of patience, and being patient and tolerant of others arises from caring for them or cherishing others. Happiness of mind and health are the result of pure morality or not harming others. Moral restraint arises from not wishing to hurt others and that comes from caring for them or cherishing them in the first place. Wealth comes from generosity and that comes from cherishing others. A high position results from respect which is a factor of cherishing others. Every positive result, every form of happiness, every positive mind, all good, condi- good conditions and higher rebirths have cherishing others as their basis. He goes on to say that our present fortunate state as human beings, with the ability and all the facilities to practice Dharma, are a direct result of past generosity, ethics and so on, all based on cherishing others. The attainments of the great Bodhisattvas, he writes, and the final great bliss and omniscience of Buddhahood are all gained on the basis of cherishing others. And he quotes a verse out of Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. What need is there for much explanation? The childish work for their own welfare, the Buddhas work for the welfare of others. Just look at the difference between the two. Reading from The Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism about the disadvantages of self-cherishing, Geshe Lodin writes, Compared with the beneficial results of exchanging the thought of self with the thought of others, the disadvantages of not doing so are exactly the opposite. All forms of suffering and all unwanted circumstances arise from the attitude of selfishly cherishing oneself. The same form of reasoning applies. All suffering arises from negative karma, which is itself a result of non-virtuous states of mind, which in turn derive from the self-cherishing attitude. The unwanted circumstance of a short life with poor health is a result of killing others in the past. Killing others is done on the basis of anger or attachment, both of which 
are forms of self-cherishing. Poverty is the result of miserliness, the self-cherishing attitude of clinging to your wealth rather than using it with generosity to help others. Unreasoned fear is the karmic result of malice, disregarding the happiness of others by wishing to hurt them. Lacking success and resources is the result of excessive attachment and grasping for such things due to self-cherishing. All the sufferings of the human realm as well as the sufferings of the three lower realms arise from negative actions based on the delusions of attachment, anger, ignorance and so on, which themselves arise from self-cherishing. As the Guru Puja tells us, this chronic disease of cherishing myself is the source giving rise to unwanted suffering. Perceiving this, bless me to blame, begrudge and destroy this great demon of selfishness. Geshe Loden continues, Whatever suffering, problems, unhappiness or difficulty you encounter has self-cherishing as its source. Self-cherishing brings no benefit to others, nor does it produce anything but suffering for you. When you see clearly the disadvantages of indulging the self-cherishing attitude and compare those with the limitless advantages of cherishing others, you will develop the intention to be rid of the innate habit of self-cherishing. Dr. Alex Burson, in his commentary, points out that self-cherishing leads us to cling to the one point of view we regard as ours, to constantly think about ourselves and talk about ourselves. That leads to a host of problems. He writes that when things don't go a certain way we expect, we get all upset, especially if they work out as someone else wanted. But if we're not so stuck in our own point of view, but, and I quote, if we cherish others and think of others as being more important than ourselves in this respect, we don't get so upset. Of course, we need to have a balance between taking care of our own needs and others' needs, he writes. But if we think in terms of numbers, then certainly, as His, Holy, His Holiness always points out, others are almost infinite in number and we're only one. And so, if you look to see what would be fair, then obviously Working for others is far more important than just working for our own selfish aims. Dr. Burson does, however, go on to differentiate between what he calls personal selfish aims and the aim of improving oneself. This is quite an important point, because sometimes, when I'm in a discussion group or teaching, people wonder if it's selfish to spend time alone, studying, contemplating and meditating, when one could be out helping to solve some fearful problems facing the world, or even problems in your community or neighborhood. It's analogous to becoming a good doctor. A person certainly will have no hope of even entering the medical profession if they don't first spend many years learning and practicing. In the same way, we have to spend at least some of our time working solely on ourselves so that we can become better at helping others. As I've said before, rushing out to save the world when we've done nothing to save ourselves is just asking for disillusion and burnout. Of course, when we talk about improving ourselves, we don't mean getting a bigger mansion or a more swanky car. The aim of self-improvement is a greater ability to help and sustain others. Now, re returning to Dr. Burson, he suggests that when we get upset, we stop and really look deeply into the question, why am I so upset? Usually, we will see it's because things didn't go our way. 
And what is behind that attitude but self-cherishing? He quotes a line from the seven points of mind training of Geshe Chikawa that we talked about last week. The line is, put all the blame on one thing. The one thing is self-cherishing. Dr. Burson writes, and that actually is very, very helpful when we're feeling upset, disturbed in some way or another. It doesn't have to be only with situations with other people. Even when we're by ourselves, put the blame on one thing. In other words, look and see, why am I so upset? And it's because of self-cherishing. I wanted it to be like this, and it wasn't. That's usually why we're so upset. Then, of course, you can start to apply many opponents to that, not just the opponent of thinking of the voidness of the self, of me, but also thinking, isn't this totally unrealistic, that I expect everything always to work out the way that I want it to? That's absurd. What do I expect from samsara? So one has to work on that self-cherishing. So it's very, very helpful when we're upset. Don't just stay in it and feel worse and worse and worse. For instance, we're having a problem and something didn't work out in our lives and we're really very upset and unhappy about this. And so we identify, okay, that's because I'm just thinking of it from my own point of view and I wanted it like this and I didn't get it. Poor me. Then we think, what is the result of thinking like that? It just makes me more and more miserable and it just puts me figuratively in a hell-type state of mind and disables me from helping others and so on because I'm so upset. Whereas, if I think of the other person, let's say from their point of view, and try to understand what was their way of thinking, and if I think in terms of the larger scope of others in general, then it's inappropriate to just think of my own point of view. If I can think in terms of others, that will broaden my mind, make me happier, I can understand, and so on. Dr. Bozen admits that this is intellectually easy to understand, but accepting it emotionally is a different kettle of fish. Intellectually, we know the type of reaction that brings a hell-type state of mind, but emotionally, we can't accept that the other person's point of view is more important than our own. I still want it my own way. Poor me still dominates. We might even act in a forgiving, friendly way, but inside, turmoil still rages. And I think the way to handle this is to think of the analogy of a horse, a wild horse or a dog, or something like that, writes Dr. Burson. You tie the horse up in a pen with a fence and the horse goes crazy. It doesn't want to settle down. Or the dog as well. You tie the dog to a post and the dog is barking and trying to get away and so on. That's what our minds are like. When we try to stay focused on the benefits of cherishing others and thinking of others, and that it really is a losing battle to think just of myself, we don't want to accept that, and we feel very uncomfortable. It's like we're the dog trying to get away from the mindfulness, what's holding us to the post of this thought. The only way to start to actually feel it on an emotional level, not just the intellectual understanding, is to just force ourselves to stay there. And the longer that you stay with this thought, eventually the ego-powered mind gives up and relaxes. And it's when you relax with the understanding that then you start to begin to actually feel it. At least from my own experience, I find that that's the only way that we can break through this barrier between intellectual and emotional understanding. It's all a matter of how much you relax with the understanding. This is very much how Thich Nhat Hanh also recommends 
we deal with this disturbing emotion. But now we're going to have to leave it there, for now our time is together is up. Thanks for joining the program today, and please tune in again next week. Before you go, please take a little time to dedicate the program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.